it brought back my favorite MC on the PSA tour, Raiko. Raiko, who does the Hong Kong Open, she's special. My wife was behind me as I was watching Raiko do some of her trophy ceremony and some of her interviews, and she made me promise that I would not make fun of Raiko, so I'm not going to. So instead, I'm going to say, for all you fans out there, please, I beg you, go to PSA TV, watch the interviews, both post-match and then the trophy ceremony with Raiko. You will not be disappointed. That's all I have to say. And shout out to the men's finalists, according to Raiko, Ali, Fareg, and Paul Coy. She said she enjoyed both of them very much. So shout out, shout out, Rika. <laughs> Connor, you know what I'm saying. Put it this way. If the fun police, AKA Connor, will in this podcast, I have recorded many voice memos of, of Rico's interviews, and maybe we'll plug some of them if the fun police will allow that. I have no problem with that, Bill, but it's funny throwing stones from glass houses all the time of, of, of all the butchering of pronunciations of names. But uh, anyway, uh, that, that's where you live. I think my wife is listening to us record this right now because as we're speaking, she just texted me and said, good job. Be nice. Yeah. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not really asking. We'll get away. To a place where we don't know. What about this? This call is being recorded. Fans, we are back for another edition of the Roundup, catching up on the weekly headlines, results, and news from the professional tour and college squash. I'm Connor Malley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Bill Buckingham and PJ Johnson. Welcome back, boys. Good afternoon, gents. Been a while, long time no see, and uh, yeah, looking forward to this one. Quite a bit to talk about in, in the show coming up. Connor, it's nice to be here. Thank you for welcoming me. I appreciate it. We're looking forward to this. We have a lot to go over, as PJ has mentioned. Hong Kong literally just ended a couple hours ago, so we'll get into that. We'll get into a little bit of the CSA. It's the pre-Christmas CSA matches are going on, and then we have a special guest to talk about the the 2023 Men's World Team Championships taking place in New Zealand next week. Let's welcome on our special guest because he could also chime in on the on the PSA and on a little bit on the CSA if he wants to. The U.S. National Teams coach, the head of national teams, Ang Benghi. Thank you so much, Bill. And obviously, nice to see you, Connor and PJ. I, I think what an exciting time for U.S. squash. And yeah, I look forward to sharing some of the inside information. <laughs> Could I clear one thing up before we even start? And we know this, but this is more for our audience who doesn't know you as well as we do, because you are my my colleague. When people ask for your name or whatever, do they call you Ang? Do they call you Bang? Or do they call you Bang He? Where, how does that go? Actually, even PJ might not know this, right? <laughs> <laughs> Ong is actually my family name. In, yeah. in Asia, your family name is always, it always comes first. So basically, my first name in a Western world will be Bang He. So if Bang Hee name will be Bang Hee Ong. Okay. We're in the Western world, so Bang yep. Hee it is. Oh. He, you should oh. really just say that's Mr. Ong to you, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ong. He identifies as he, though. So there you go. Yeah, exactly. So this is off to a roaring start. So guys, Hong Kong, the PSA event, the Platinum event in Hong Kong just ended. And, and we're kind of, it's beneficial that we have Ong Beng Hee on as the, the national team's coach because we had a very unfortunate incident in Hong Kong in the women's final. Amanda Sobi in a Platinum final beat Sherbini handily in the semis. And then unfortunately, I believe it was at 6-5 in the first game against Hanya Al-Hamami was injured and had to be carried off the court. It looked very severe. I know there's nothing official ha has been put out and there's, I haven't heard from Amanda, obviously. Bang He, have you talked to Amanda? Do you have any insight on what's happening in Hong Kong? It, it didn't look great by her reaction. 
it looked like another Achilles tear. It looked like she knew exactly what happened when she was laying on court there and her emotions betrayed that. Yeah, I think uh, without answering it for her and also receiving the reports yet, she has, I've spoken to her this morning right after she got off court and I think she's probably at the hotel just relaxing a little bit and trying to understand what just happened. Really unfortunate. I think Amanda playing her one of the best squash, having beaten Shabini the day before. Uh, I've asked her how she's doing. She's mentioned that she has an appointment with the medical team tomorrow at 10 a.m. And then I guess we, we'll know further by hopefully after her test and the results. But what an unfortunate incident for her. I think we all feel so bad and we hope that it's not as severe as the first Achilles tear. So when somebody tears an Achilles like that, and this is more logistical for my edification, when somebody does that in a place like Hong Kong, it's not like they're a baseball team or a football team that flies on a private jet or it gets chartered somewhere and you could put them on that jet and they could put their leg up. Eventually, Amanda has to fly home. So does she get, is there a treatment for Achilles tears that you do there is there a surgery that's done there or do you just pretty much stabilize it and then she flies home and gets the medical attention in the united states how does that typically work i think currently we're very fortunate that psa has a physio over there i think derek ryan is over in hong kong if i'm not mistaken again i don't know the full treatment from tomorrow i think obviously she needs to know the results first and I guess she might have to spend a couple of days to let it cool down a little bit before she can fly back home make an appointment and do whatever is necessary. So we don't know how bad it is yet, but even though it looked really painful on court for her, just from her expression and everything. So yeah, I think we just need to be patient and wait for the final result. And typically, if it's like anything that is life or death that would happen in country, if you are able to, like this, might not have to have surgery right away. So it's like stable and she can choose to potentially have surgery there or travel back if she has a preferred surgeon. Yikes. The thought of that long of a flight home to the United States with an injury like that, to me, is daunting. Yeah, you'd have to also evaluate like whether it's safe to fly like with an injury like that. So uncomfortable, yes. Painful, yes. And then it's like, which surgeon do you want working on it? That would right. be a question for her. Best wishes to Amanda, obviously, just an awful injury, and our wishes go out to her, especially in a platinum final. She hadn't been in a platinum final in some time. She had just come off a huge, one of the most, but really the most impressive wins of her career. She dismantled the number one player and maybe the greatest women's player in the history of squash in 35 minutes. A real shame. I think on her Twitter, she did mention that even though she might be taking some time off, but she's determined to make a, a comeback for the Olympics. Yeah, we're hopeful. Next couple of years, I think she has the time to get herself fit. You know, she's done it once. Very confident she'll be able to come back even stronger. Yeah, wishing her the best of recovery. On the women's side, that's a second title role for Hanya Halmami, who seems to have straightened out any issues she might have had in the beginning of the season with her confidence or just with her play. And she is, again, looking very sharp. And with Noran Gohar out with injury, looking like she might be the one that chases down Sherbini for the number one, the number one ranking in the world. So on the men's side, we had an epic final. We had Paul Call beating Ali Farag in five games, nearly 90 minutes. PJ, everybody, I'm assuming everybody here got to watch at that. I'm going to give my take on it. We're talking about it being an epic final, and it really was for excitement. But as far as quality of play, the last game, both of those players basically turned into club players at the end, right? If you guys watched it, at 6-all, Farag tinned the ball. Farag is up 8-7, tinned the ball. 8-all, call, tinned the ball. 9-8, Ali, tins the ball. Then the picture went a little blurry, so we couldn't watch. <laughs> Something happened to the PSA TV feed where we couldn't see what was happening. And then Ali took a wrong path at 9-all to go down 10-9. And then Ali, another 10 
at 10-9 to lose the match. So as epic as it was and as exciting as it was, man, did the quality of play drop off in those last few points of that match. Yeah, I'd love to know which club do you play at, Bill, that dropped <laughs> to that kind of quality, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> because I thought the whole thing was just, I thought the whole final was fantastic from start to finish. Paul Cole, it's not often used. They had an unbelievable battle in the US Open final as well, where Cole managed to come through that. So it's one of those, these two players at the moment. Cole's obviously coming back from a massive drop in, I would say, confidence over the last year to 14 months. He seems to have regained that. And when he and Ali take to the court, especially when it's in the late stages in the finals, they seem to bring out the best in each other. From an entertainment standpoint, the toing and throwing, the that no player ever really opened up a significant lead halfway through the kind of fourth game, really, and into the fifth. And it was nip and tuck in that fifth game. I don't think either, any player, I think Paul, did Paul Cole, I think he may have got five, two up possibly, but there was no quarter given until the shots that hit the tin, they were the right shots to play. Right. But it was just, an, it was just a case of the occasion and the pressures that are created by, say, Farag's movement or Cole feeling so close to the finishing line. What was so impressive for me watching Paul Cole in that whole tournament was this, it's been made quite public that in the coming events, Paul Cole's going to be doing some work with Rod Martin when he's at these events. Robert Owen's obviously Paul Cole's mainstay coach, but Rod travels now with a lot of players and he'll be helping Cole during these tournaments. He did the same thing, obviously, at the US Open. But for Paul Cole to change his technique during a tournament and implement it throughout the event is nothing shy of just absolute brilliance, really. To have that kind of trust or that willingness to do that while you're in the, the thick of an event players may make some tweaks prior to an event but when they get into the event they'll just go on and play and not really focus and concentrate too much on it but it was very apparent for me with Paul Cole's swing both sides forehand and backhand the, the difference in height and his preparation this is something he'd obviously worked on with Rod and he obviously took so much confidence from that and he saw the rewards to, to do that throughout the event during the event was hats off and kudos to him. He's done it now in those in the US Open and the Hong Kong Open and I think he came out the deserved winner. But I thought absolutely brilliant from both players and played in the fairest fairest possible way. The attitude which it was played in, the sportsmanship between the two players was a great testament to them and, and to our sport. Lisa Aitken, the premier PSA squash analyst, also pointed out that the pressure seemed to get to both of them actually near the end. So causing those tunes, just as you said, kudos to yeah. Lisa for showing once again that she is probably the premier analyst. Absolutely. Yeah, I think the analogy kind of came to mind for me was more like Formula One, where this was usually you've seen Ali more outside comfortably having a lead, just the people back defending. This was sparks were flying. Paul was matching neck and neck. So those tens were just like going around the corners and you're just like, it's, they're taking as tight as they can, pushing it to the limits. Yeah. Imagine, Bill, if you could be in the, quote, race car of Paul Cole and experience what that feels like, how fast they're moving, flying around the court. It was really amazing to watch. I think the other part that was electric was the crowd was really getting so supportive, really getting into it. And uh, we're seeing an answer to the Ali Farag dominance with Paul yeah. Cole. 
really being able to figure it out. And I, you, you could see and I, I, he turned it around, Ali, but there's a little bit of chirpiness coming from him where he didn't like some of the calls and he was, it's a little bit different when you're leading comfortably versus someone's neck and neck. Yeah. In- interesting with Paul's lead up too is for the first time, he didn't have marathon matches in a platinum event where typically Paul coming into the final has played a, like a 95 minute match against Macon. This time his he did 39, 54, 40, 53 leading into the finals, which is almost oh, for the regular player. That's almost not playing at all, to be honest with you, and compared to what Paul usually does in these platinums. Yeah, I think what we've seen this season, Bill, apart from the early dominance from Ali winning, I think, five of six events, is the openness of the game in both the men's and the women's. The unpredictability, the different winners, the upsets, especially in the, the top end of the game, it's making it that much more exciting now. With Assals now he's three matches in after his ban, so he starts three tournaments in, sorry, from his ban. He's starting to settle in a bit better. He's still a bit rusty by his standards, He's just going to get better and better. I'd like to think that from the tournament of champions January next year, I think the second half of this season could be an absolute belter because I think players, as they have a nice little rest now coming into the festive period and a bit of a break leading into the middle of January, once they come back, TOC always throws up some some of the classics of the World Tour. And I think with everybody now starting to hit their stride. People have now played each other a few times. People are getting used to Asal. The making's on his way back into the fray. Paul Cole now, he's won a couple of the last major events. You've got a lot of high-quality players in that top four, top five world rankings that are going to make these events become extremely exciting to watch. Hey, Bang He, just a little FYI, all of us like to talk. And unless you actually jump in and say something, you are not going to get a word in edgewise. (laughs) I'm getting warmed up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Benny, it's actually just for Bill. Bill doesn't, (laughs) the fact that he shared the mic this much uh, is actually pretty impressive, some might say. So, But I think what PG just said, of course, everyone is so competitive in the men's and the women's, but especially for the men's. They have, they're playing nonstop for six, seven, eight, nine months now. As you can see, yeah. some of the dropout, a lot of injuries now. And I think the players really need to calculate how many events they can handle because these top guys are killing each other at the moment. Matches are dragging on. They are getting better by the day, right? Everybody is including sports science now. They're, they're more educated compared to our time, PJ. Okay. So I, I think, of course, yes, the game is faster now. It's more powerful, but... It's, it's just brutal. It's a long season. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how well they manage. Yeah. Bengi, Bengi, from a fellow professional point of view here, obviously UK, you were a little bit after my, uh, my era, but I think it's such an exciting time for the players right now because all of a sudden they're actually going to have that luxury, aren't they? Being able to pick and choose tournaments. Whereas during our period, it was there was you could possibly say a bit of a slump in the tour, yeah. where we were forced to play whatever was out there because there was a possibility that there wouldn't be enough events to get your average up and what have you. So now, as you say, these players will need to be uh, slightly more structured and a bit more calculated, and that could play yeah. a, a, quite a big part. Yeah, even with my Team USA guys, I of course they are not top ten, but at that lower level, top forty, top fifty. Some of our guys are playing 16, 17. We even have one of our players playing 23 tournaments per season. It's a lot. Yeah, my job here is just to make sure from next year, they're all educated enough. Of course, have the liberty and the freedom to play as long as they're fit enough and 
what we don't want is any unfortunate event with injury and then they have to take six months out or any professional having out being out for four to six months the loss of income it's yeah can be quite heavy yeah Yeah. that's my job trying to make sure they become very selective with what they are playing so with this event, un- unfortunately, yeah, there two two really horrific instances. We lost Karim Abdelgawad, <laughs> and I haven't heard about the extent of his injury. But again, another star player who was supposed to be a stalwart on the Egyptian team coming up in the world teams that we'll talk about later. And then obviously we've talking about Amanda. But I think I want to I want to throw this out there. Overall, I have to say, beside the final between Colin Farag, which had a lot of juice to it, this was probably the worst platinum event I've seen on the PSA tour in quite some time. There was absolutely no, no juice behind this event. I watched it up from the beginning rounds. They played in three different venues. They played the semis in a, what looked to be a fantastic venue, but otherwise leading up to the finals, there was, this was a boring event in a lot of ways, I think. Maybe could it be related? It's been a long season as well. These guys, they started in, I think early August in Paris open or September, sorry. They played a lot. So. Players like Amanda, she's just completed Pan Am Games, two weeks over there playing individual doubles, team event, went straight to to Asia. And unfortunately, she's done something to Achilles. So again, these players are playing a lot and it's very demanding. People don't, people fail to realize how tough it is now compared to my time and PJ's time. We had fewer tournaments. We could actually take a couple of blocks of uh, just to train, just to be ready, to prepare. But these yeah. guys, they have literally maybe 10 weeks, 12 weeks throughout the year. And that's it. Yeah. If you miss that, you are done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. this is the fourth platinum since the beginning of the season. The season starts in September, late August with Paris. But otherwise, it starts in September and we've already had four platinums. So yeah, scheduling is definitely something that the PSA needs to look at. Because to have four major events like that in a three-month period, it takes a little luster off of all of them in a lot of ways. Yeah, definitely. And and then you have the world teams right after this as well. So these boys, are, <laughs> yeah. they are grinding, they're grinding hard. But, yeah. So just a few more things before we move off Hong Kong. We had a, two different players reach the quarterfinals on the women's side, which now with Amanda going down to injury with Joel King being injured. And as we talked about the fall off of Sarah Jane Perry's games, three of the stalwarts, we had Satomi Watanabe of Japan reaching a quarterfinal for the first time in a platinum. Big for the game, I think, because anytime a Japanese athlete does well in a sport, it always focuses a lot of attention on that sport from the Japanese media. So if Satomi could keep that trajectory up and start becoming a factor on the women's tour, it could add a lot of media pre- media glare to the to the women's side of it. And also one of my, I've been predicting, I think for three years now that she's going to break into the upper echelons, Rowan Alarabi, and she reached a quarterfinal also. Once again, my prediction's coming true, albeit this one just a couple years behind behind the curve. Even a broken clock's right twice a day, Bill. You throw enough names out there and people will remember your predictions. Yeah. You you predict a different player every podcast. Yeah, exactly. I was very impressed with Watanabe in the Tournament of Champions earlier this year. We saw some signs there relatively new to the tour. Great to see a fresh face out there and flying the flag, obviously, with the inclusion now of the Olympics, some of the Asian countries, China, Japan and, and so on and so forth. Hopefully those kind of players can really create a bit of an interest and a bit of a following. But I think the future for her could be a pretty bright one because she's certainly showing some positive signs early on, a bit of confidence, a bit more experience on the tour. And I think she will cause a, a few upsets of her own. I agree with you. Yeah, I feel you know, the Asian players, are they're actually very skillful and not forgetting someone like Siva Sangari, 
who is going to be top top 16, top 12, and eventually top 10, right? So these are the same batch of players, Satomi, Sevasangari, and then you have the younger players like Chan Sing Yuk from, from Hong Kong, and also Aifa Asman from Malaysia. A few of younger Asian players are actually coming up and they're doing very well. So yeah, very exciting times for the women's game, I think. Bad news yeah. for us, we have to <laughs> exactly. dig a lot deeper for American squash. So we'll, we'll try, we'll try our best. Benny, with the inclusion of the Olympics, I'm more familiar with, I guess, the Western countries and how that might impact it. But like from the Asian countries, how will that the Olympics inclusion change the whether it's the culture, whether it's the funding? Uh, how do you see that impacting? Uh, I think the biggest thing is obviously funding. I think the government funding for any sport to be included in Olympics is it could be three times the normal amount that all squash association been receiving. So countries like I, I know that Malaysia, Qatar, and even like Hong Kong and India, all of a sudden you have more support. If it's not just funding, it could be more of service, coaching services, could be sports science. You're going to have more people involved and everything will be in detail. Everything is calculated towards Olympic. Yeah, I, I think it just gives you a bigger project in the next four years in the Asian side. And I, I feel... Hopefully with Team USA as well, we'll be able to catch up. We'll be able to understand how important this is. I think being in Olympics is huge and being the first player to win any medal in Olympics for squash, especially, I think it's just going to be a game changer. So I'm yeah, very for fortunate that it's, in, it's happening in on, LA. On, on that topic, Beggy, and obviously you don't have to give numbers, but has there been a significant improvement in funding within the US because of the Olympic announcement in squash? I think not yet. We're still waiting for the US OPC. Obviously, yeah. they have the Paris Olympic to, to focus on at the moment. So yeah. if I'm not mistaken, I think they, they will come back to us very soon. But for now, okay. it's just, just waiting. Yeah. There are also the known Asian countries that have already been reached the top ranks in the sport. Do you think any other Asian countries with now the Olympic inclusion, and I guess I'm speaking specifically about China, will really start increasing funding? I think China is, if I'm not mistaken, China is still waiting. They are very interested in hosting some PSA from what I've heard from, we have a lot of Asian Americans here and they have good connections back home in China. I think one of family friends, I think PJ, you might know this family friend as well. So yeah. I think they are, they're trying to help PSA, trying to grow the sport back in China. Uh, obviously they don't have the players. They might not be ready in 2028, but who knows, give them eight years, 12 years. And all of a sudden you're going to have a lot of Chinese players playing. So I think uh, 2028 could be like a test market for the Chinese squash. If it goes well, you, you, you never know, right? They, when they catch up and they take things seriously, it will explode. At the moment, the biggest event they've hosted was the recent Asian Games. They're probably the only Asian Games where they had all the courts which were actually glass courts. Even all the side courts were glass courts. So when they're ready to invest, they will invest. They hosted the Women's World Team Championships. I'm blanking on the year, like whether 20... Yeah, 18 couple, maybe yes they did a few years back yeah, yeah with yeah. three glass courts and... so anything can happen in china and we hope yeah you know china india as well so you never know <laughs> it was nice to have the hong kong open back after after its absence during covid and i would be remiss and i know there's a little pall over this because of amanda but i would be remiss if we didn't mention the semifinals. it brought back my favorite mc on the on the on the psa tour Raiko, 
Raiko, who, who, who does the Hong Kong Open. She's special. My wife was behind me as I was watching Raiko do some of her trophy ceremony and some of her interviews. And she made me promise that I would not make fun of Raiko. So I'm not going to. So instead, I'm going to say for all you fans out there, please, I beg you, go to PSA TV, watch the interviews, both post-match and then the trophy ceremony with Raiko. You will not be disappointed. That's all I have to say. And shout out to the men's finalists, according to Raiko, Ali Farag and Paul Coy. She said she enjoyed both of them very much. So shout out, <laughs> shout out, Raiko. <laughs> yeah, Connor, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Put it this way. If the fun police, AKA Connor, will in this podcast, I have recorded many voice memos of, of Raiko's interviews, and maybe we'll plug some of them if the fun police will allow that. I have no problems with that, Bill, but it's funny throwing stones from glass houses all the time of, of, of all the butchering of pronunciations of names. But uh, anyway, uh, that, that's where you live. I think uh, I my not... wife is listening to us record this right now because as we're speaking, she just texted me and said, good job. Be nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there you she go. Knows you well. She, she knows does. You well. Just lastly on the PSA tour, just want to throw this out there just to give him a shout out. Mohammed Zakaria of Egypt won his third straight challenger event this week so 16 years old the world junior runner-up just yet another egyptian player coming through through to the psa i don't care what level it is and as we talk about the level of squash at all these events be it challenger be it on the main psa tour is very high for a 16 year old to win three straight events is remarkable so congratulations to him also gives me the to get on my soapbox really quickly which i don't often do on these podcasts but i will hear He's unseated when he's playing in these tournaments for the most part. And would the squash site and all these other media outlets, please stop using the word gate crash and come up with something else. Because anytime an unseated player reaches any kind of round, they say he gate crashed and it's just annoying. Come up with something else. Thank you. Do you want to give any other suggestions? Uh, I will. Or just point out problems. I get it, Bill. I just I, get know, it. You know how I am, Connor. I like yeah, to Yeah, I get them. that. Yeah. <laughs> no solutions. No solutions. Go so be, before we get on to the world teams, I just want to go quickly. The CSA is in that period right now, right before exams, that some of the teams are getting matches in. Just a couple bullet points. Biggest bullet point, Harvard actually played squash the last this last week. Just for you fans at home who are wondering, is Harvard University ever going to step on the squash court? They did step on the squash court and had two wins, beat Dartmouth and Virginia. So they did, and they actually traveled to Virginia. So Dartmouth squash, Harvard squash team packed their suitcases, packed their duffel bags, packed their bus, and went to Virginia and played squash. So I think that's newsworthy in itself. It looks like UPenn men and women are both going to win the national championships anyway. So I think it's all doesn't really make a difference at this point. Is that another predict? Is that another bill prediction that we heard? For, that we heard. That's a bill prediction. That's a bill trying not to put a hex on my friend Gilly Lane's UPenn squash team. But lastly, we talked about it, and I did the bill is wrong. Bill apologizes to the new interim league commissioner Harry Smith, who we thought was making the CSA matches of the week based on his college because he had Colby be the CSA match of the week last week and it turned out to be the most fantastic match so I apologize for that this week the women's match of the week was another head scratcher it was FNM against Wesleyan two teams not really ranked in the top 10 I was like I said that's an interesting one I wonder if it's gonna be close I it was 5-4 it was a fantastic match but I still couldn't figure out why and then I did some research I went back into the annals of FNM squash and someone who appears to be the league interim league commissioner's twin sis, twin sister once played number one for FNM. So I don't know if that factored in 
FNM being the squash match of the week again for the CSA. But what we'll have to do going forward is just look and see if the interim commissioner has any relation with the teams that are being like forecast as the match of the week. So right now I'm apologizing, but just saying we're going to keep an eye on it. Where my head goes, Bill, is uh, let's start checking bank accounts and betting lines. I, that's just where my head goes. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Because we're not going to say it's uncomfortable to say the interim league commissioner's name. So we'll just call him the uh, ILC. ILC, interim league commissioner. How about that? I just came up with that. We'll call him the I- ILC. We're going to take keep an eye do on you, the ILC. Just do you just need us to all say good job, Bill? Is that helpful? You. Little pat on the back would be good, but it, no. All joking aside, it was the match of the week. The four spot came down from two games to love to win in five, and the six spot came down from two games to one to win in five to turn the tables on that match. So really solid effort. And again, shout out to the ILC for once again forecasting the match of the week. Well done. All right, the main event. This is why we're here, Benghi. Thank you for sticking with us and listening to us go on and on for for all that time. I know half of that made literally no sense to you, but just know if you were a listener of this podcast, you would have been laughing hysterically at everything we just said. Connor, since you are the national team, really national teams are your your thing. They're your favorite part of squash. I'm going to let you introduce this segment. We have the world team championships coming up, so take it away. With uh, Benny and PJ on the call, I think representing your country for any athlete really just stands out from all of your other activities. I When I was trying out for Team USA, I've, I've always loved it. I didn't make the team. And I took a different path and eventually became director of Team USA. And I was one of those nut jobs on the sidelines. <laughs> like going, come on, USA! Yeah. <laughs> like, I really, I'm pretty controlled at most events. And I just really found myself not being able to control myself, even having to edit some videos <laughs> that I took early with flip phones back in the day. But uh, yeah, this is the first time it's been hosted since 2019, which was in in the U.S. New Zealand is hosting it for, I believe, the first time. And they have 24 countries joining in. It's another long event. It's seven days. And unlike a regular tournament where you essentially play knockout, this is where you play to place. And so go from pool play going into, then that gives you kind of like the World Cup of soccer. It gives you, you do pool play, then you go into a draw and you're playing out for play. So each day there's action. And come that final day, everyone's pretty, every match really counts because you're playing, whether it's outperforming your seating in that tournament. So every, that finals day really matters to a lot of players. That's the, for those who aren't familiar with how the World Team Championships happens, that's kind of it in a nutshell. But we do have, we haven't gotten the seedings yet. So this is going to be us making the inferences. The squads have been announced, so we can do some extrapolations there, and, and there are some clear winners. And I'll turn it over to PJ and Bengi to just jump in and see who, who are the ones jumping out to you guys for to watch. So before you do that, PJ, Connor, Bengi, have any preliminary seedings come out that you've been aware of? Because we haven't seen anything published. Yes, they have sent out an email to us to confirm seeded teams from number 1 to 24. Top five, obviously, Egypt with number one. I think England at two, due to both Shobaki brothers. France at three. And have a quick guess who's number four and five. <laughs> I think Switzerland was coming up for me. Who else? So here this. I'm going to give my final guess because I'm often right about these predictions. I'm going to go U.S. is number five. Germany's number six. You, Bill, you got U.S. correct. We are seated number five for this event. And Connor, you are right. Switzerland is at number four. So yeah. those are the top five. Germany, if I'm not mistaken, they are seated number nine, which is for me quite a surprise. But then again, yeah, it's pretty tight from number five to number nine. We pretty much, for me personally, I feel 
yeah, we're all pretty equal in terms of standard and the ranking as well. So yeah, five to nine would be interesting. I guess all of us are fighting to be in the top eight, hopefully. <laughs> and then yeah. yeah. Along those lines, and PJ, just some no- some countries that are notable and missing would be India. Obviously, that would have been a really yeah. high-performing one. Pakistan, mainly because of its heritage in there. But then me- we're missing a lot of Pan Am countries and certainly Caribbean. Exactly. But Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, and Spain, all... Peru, no good? Don't think so. No, not yeah, no Peru. Wow. So, yeah, and to give a snapshot there, in the top 100, there's 27 countries represented. And the top 200, there's 40 countries represented, just to give some color into the 24 teams that are there. Yeah, but if you look at some of the teams that are there really quickly, there are a few teams there that have nobody who's even has, they don't even have any ranked PSA players, period, on the team. Rich, is pretty startling when you see that a team like India that has 24, 38, and 66, led by Saurabh Gosal, not being there. Instead, we have the Samoas and the Cook Islands of the world. Just a little odd, and I'm wondering if it's all travel-related and expense-related. I think, personally, it's been a very big year for all squash players, right? I think in the Asian side, you have the Asian Games that basically took two weeks to, to complete, not including the PSA. And then from our side of North America, we have the Pan Am Games. So I think sometimes maybe the scheduling, I think everyone's totally. very tired. It's been a long season, very exciting season, I think. I'm sure they're all very grateful, but I guess, yeah, sometimes, yeah, maybe the scheduling towards the end is right before Christmas, one week before Christmas. It's, it's a long way to go, right, to, to play seven matches straight. Yeah. But we're not complaining. Team USA, we're, we're very happy. They decided to give it a miss. Gives us a great opportunity to try to be top five, hopefully, yeah. So you don't think it's a miss by the WSF for putting it in New Zealand and it, with a very far-flung trip for a lot of those South American countries? Perhaps, yes, but I'm sure that there's a reason for it. Like I said, when you have Asian Games in a way, you have the Pan Am Games in a way, then you have all the majors of the, all the Platinums. And yeah, I think, yeah. If I'm not mistaken, Beggy, was it not supposed to be in New Zealand during the COVID yeah. debacle? 2021. In 2021. Yeah. So this was the earliest window, Bill, I think, that they could... To make up. Yeah, to make up. when they could reschedule it. And listen, as much of a pain as it is for a lot of the countries to get down there, it's going to be the summertime down in New Zealand. And with Paul's success, with Joel's success, there was a fantastic New Zealand Open in 2020, late 21, maybe 22. I can't, can't remember the exact date. But there are squash fanatics down in that region. So for them yeah. to have exposure to the level of players that are going to be travelling down... Uh, and again, keep talking about this, and we we need to get as much leverage out of it as we can. But with this whole Olympic situation, the more we can get squash into those kind of areas again. Squash New Zealand, don't forget, was a massive squash nation mm-hmm. over the years with Ross Norman, Susan Dubois, Stuart Davenport, and players of that ilk. So for them to be taking it back to that area, I think it's a fantastic credit to the team down in New Zealand. And a lot of it's off the hard work of Paul and Joel. So I think they're going to put on a yep. brilliant world championships. I heard they have a, a, an incredible breakfast set up. And I also feel, I think it's for players to be representing a country which they don't get to do often. PSA is, it's, yes, it's a very demanding tour, but it's more about the, themselves. I think playing for your country should be the biggest honor. And this is the time where they can put aside their egos and all the differences and come together to play as a team. I always remember when I used to play for the country, I remember we played England, right, PJ? And yeah. just to take one match off England is like such a huge thing in Malaysia. So it's, it's a different feel, different take. Yeah, I, 
for me, it's yes, yeah, as a coach as well for Team USA. That's the reason why we call it Team USA, right? Because we are building a team to be representing the country. So for me, I take this very seriously and I, I don't care which part of the year we're going to be playing, but this is a major event for us. So of course, we are going for it. Yeah. Yeah, the thing is exactly right. Playing for your country in a sport is one that is met with such extreme, literally polar opposite emotions. There's one of an immense amount of pride because it's a childhood dream to play for your country, especially for me playing in England with us being historically such a squash nation. But then on the flip side of that, it's the added pressure because although squash is historically... It is an individual sport. You're part of a team. So there's if during an individual event you lose, you've only got yourself to blame and you're the only one that's really affected. But when you put on your England team shirt or your Malaysia team shirt or USA team shirt, it comes with that, that added pressure as well. So, again, these are very different emotions, as Bengi just said there, that the players have not really been exposed to before. For them, for a USA to go on against a team Egypt and maybe nick a string or two, is such an, a, a great opportunity for them. So there's so much more that goes on from a player's perspective. A lot of things are learned and experiences are gained and made at these kind of events that if you've never been to one before, then you could never even begin to imagine what kind of feelings and emotions and pressures you, you actually go through because they're so different from anything else you've ever yeah. experienced. Like a classic example just happened in Pan Am Games the pressure that Team USA felt and we actually, we lost to Canada, right? We're not expected to lose, but the team pressure, when you're putting on that shirt and you play for the team, sometimes the pressure can just overwhelm you. And yeah, it showed in Santiago, we didn't handle the pressure as well and we end up losing to Canada. All credit to them, they played extremely well. And for me, I find that very exciting. It gives every team a chance and opportunity to do something. Just because you're seated higher doesn't mean you're guaranteed winning things can change so yeah very exciting i love him man benny with the seating of t of and i usually what happens is these are prelim seatings sometimes they don't change before they're released but let's assume it doesn't move and team usa is in fact five it's a very interesting position right because you're not top four but obviously so semis would be the goal to try and outperform there but give some insight into and you can delineate between where you're trying to get the team to go or how the team is feeling like Going in, what are you guys looking to do for performance? I think this team that we are going with, most of them have never played in a senior level in team event. Obviously, they played the Pan Am Championship and such, but going in as a world teams, I think only Andrew Douglas ha has actually played for the team. So Shah Jahan, Spencer and Timmy, they've never actually played in a senior team. So I think we're going with these four guys that joined... Team USA, full-time, based themselves in Billy. The moment I arrived, we started working since two years back. So this is the team that actually stuck with us for the last two years. They've worked really hard. So my expectation of them, of course, if we can achieve our seeding, would be great. Team USA finished seven, I think, previously, you know, maybe a few additions back. So yeah, the mission is to finish a lot higher. Hopefully, faith will be good. If we can get the semis, I think it will be, yeah. What a result. Well, semis would definitely be a historic high. I believe we got five. Did we, um, did we finish five? Sorry, yeah. 
Yeah, but it was. I think we actually finished six, and then Italy got kicked out for we drugs. Still, so, we still take it. We still have the parade. We still have the parade of, in the scorebooks. Yeah, it all counts. <laughs> it all counts. But, uh, yeah. but no, to get to a top four finish would just be. And we've seen the women have obviously been setting the benchmark, and so for the men to get there, that really would be historic. And I think another thing to note is three out of the four players all played in college squash. So performing in this team environment. While, to your point, that those two haven't played the senior team, I don't think it's going to be lost on how to what a team environment is like, and especially under pressure. I think that really bodes well going for that team unity going in. Yeah, I'm very confident these four guys, they work really hard. Of course, they're not top 10, top 20 material yet, but like I said, if you have four guys with almost same level, top 40, top 50 level in a team event, we are quite even. I feel very confident going, going in with this team. And uh, yeah, let's see the draw. And uh, in our pool matches, we have the Czech Republic and uh, one weaker team. Yeah. Just quickly, what's going to be the squad order? Timmy will be number one, Shah two, Andrew Douglas at three, and Spencer as the number four. And can you, Benghi, shed some light on the selection process for us? So this is a different team that w- then went down to the Pan Ams. So why are these four on the team as opposed to in, in at the Pan Ams, we had uh, like Todd Harrity on the team? We had a discussion and actually having mentioned Todd, Todd is actually in a selection committee. One of the reasons why we wanted to bring a new batch of players, one of the reasons is to bring the younger guys. I think it's about time we give them the chance, the exposure, the experience. Our guys like Todd Harity, Chris Gordon, they have played for the country many times, many years. So I felt that it, it's time. If we want to make a mistake, I think it's time to make the mistake now because leading up to Olympics, we have three or four years. Leading up to Olympics, we don't have the time to correct. I just feel that this younger batch, we need to throw them into the sea and force them to learn how to swim, handle the pressure. And if we make the mistake now, okay, it's on me, but at least we made the mistake and then we can move on and try to correct things. So that they weren't chosen based on strict ranking. It was a committee that chose them. Yeah, I think the ranking played a part. I think nationals played a part as well. Spencer and Dougie, they were the finalists for the nationals and also Timmy and Shaw. One of the criteria was actually the national championship, but also the rankings. And yeah, just end of the day, I think just sending a new batch of players. I think we wanted to experiment something different rather than to be safe all the time. I think that's one of the luxuries that Team USA have. As Bengi's alluded to there, it's only... Andrew Douglas has had exposure at that uh, that level in a team event. But for Bengi to take that team down there, the experience is such a young team that you're playing with. So the experience that these guys will gain, obviously the Olympics will be on massively on the radar. But then again, the World Championships in four years' time, they'll all be eligible and they would have all had this experience down in New Zealand. No expectations on their shoulders, really. OK, there's a ranking that they've been given, but... I don't think Bengi will be too concerned. What the team will want to get to that position if they possibly can. But I would see this as much of a building experience for Team USA as anything else, because those guys, and I know how hard they all work at the centre and collectively the camaraderie that they have as a team, if they start to get those roots put into place now, it's only going to aid their cause in these major championships in a few years' time. So it's a very early stepping stone on what potentially could be a very long journey for that particular group of guys. A great experience for them. And I think they'll learn some real pearls while they're down there on that trip, for sure. 
Yeah, and it's, a, it's certainly a, a seminal moment of passing of the torch from Todd Herity, and that's why I brought him up specifically, because in my time at U.S. Squash, Todd Herity has been gone from like the top junior in the country to the top national men's team player in the country and has brought the U.S. men's team to a certain level, and now he's patching, passing the torch off to these younger guys. So I just yeah. want to recognize Todd, because he has been yeah. such a stalwart on the national teams for so many years. Yeah, and I'd like to add on, because Todd was also in the selection committee, and the way that he encouraged and supported my decision. I think if I was a player in those days, I would never give up my position. But I think Todd was still eligible to be part of the team, and yet he wanted to step aside and give Spencer the opportunity because he, he could see my vision, our Team USA's vision. We are trying to create something different. So yeah, I, huge thank you to, to Todd, actually, as a senior. And I think not many people know about this. Before we get into the actual the guts of the tournament and go over the teams and who we think is going to do what, I just have a quick question for you, Benghee. So you're the national team coach, right? These guys, a lot of them have their own coaches, more on the women's side for the U.S. because they're a lot higher ranked. What's it like when you coach a national team and you're coaching players who you don't necessarily coach during PSA events and giving them advice between games and things like that? How, do, how does that work? I've always understood once I finished my career and I came into coaching, I always understood as a national coach, I always try to make my players as a superstar and I'm just more on a background guy. And day to day, I'm here. If they need me, I'm always on court with them. But I also understood the structure of these US players. They've already been working with their private or personal coaches for a long time. So I didn't want to come in here to disrupt their preparation, right? So I've always played the number two part whenever I had to play it. I, I don't have an ego in this. I, my, my job is just to help them as long as they're winning. I think we are winning, right? So I'm always looking at a bigger picture. Of course, if they need my help in other events, I'm always available. And I've mentioned that to them many times. I, it doesn't matter if anybody that wants to help them in between games, I'm happy to step aside. So example for US Open, all their main coaches actually show up and I'm just the back seat. I'm happy to support them. I text them, I message them to, to congratulate them and offer whatever I can do to help them. But I'm happy to step aside. If their main coach is around to help them, good for them. As long as they're winning, I think we are going the right direction. So I think I have to be very careful with my own ego that I'm okay. There's no pride in this. We're all working to help the player as much as we can. Thank you. I appreciate that. So congratulations to Egypt, the 2023 World Men's Team Champion. So I think that's our preview, right? <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> <laughs> no, just being slightly facetious. So we're looking at the top teams. If you look at it, obviously I'm looking at the lineups and Ben and maybe Connor and PJ could shed light on this also. Are the lineups, not the players themselves, but the order in which they play, are they determined by PSA ranking or how are they determined? So questioning why, so say Karun's playing number one for France and when it comes to France, this could come into play because they're one of the top three and it's either going to be them or England so, probably playing. Do they do it by PSA ranking or is there another format? So each country gets to submit their lineup. Now, what can happen is other countries can submit petitions and then we have to say, what's your rationale? As an example, I'll go back to when Will Shop was injured and was coming back on and then Nick Matthew was on. There's And look, they were saying based off of challenge matches more recently, they were going off a of performance like that. So generally speaking, with the PSA rankings being so robust, that will generally be the predominant indicator. 
but you'd have to defer to I think it could be running challenge matches like hey we just played one recently this is what determined it and it would have to be official so that's generic way of how it happens but I'll let the guys shed some other light I think nationals play a crucial part right as the lineup that you want to send as long as the PSA ranking is not too big of a jump but yeah it's for the other countries to appeal as well if they feel it's unfair and so that being said, so we talk about France, but also I'm looking at, at Simon Rosner at playing for Germany. He hasn't played on the PSA Tour in over two years. Naturally, he could almost play number one for them. Still, from what I understand, as far as his what shape he's in, his quality of play. But can they also throw him in as number three? Or would that be something that other teams would say, hey, wait a minute, Simon Rosner can't play number three for Germany? I, I think most of the retired players, they would prefer to play number three, being that experience, maybe slightly unfair fit compared to how they were as a pro but I guess having Simon Rosner number three and I believe he is at number three or number four at the moment yeah for me he's Germany is one team that we have to look out for and yeah they could spring a surprise or two just along that point because that does happen Bill where there is just such a significant drop-off when you are no longer touring like there's no doubt that like Simon's skill on any given day he could probably beat someone in the top Top 30, top 20 might be a little too high, but he could do really well. But try backing that up over seven days, right? That's where it gets tired and the fatigue. And I remember we experienced this when we brought Preston Quick, was the number four player who wasn't on the tour. And at Nationals, did well in the team selection, but just you can't stand up to the rigors of the playing full-time. So looking at the teams, obviously Egypt is stacked. We don't know Karim Al-Gawad's, Abdel Gawad's. Sorry, PJ. <laughs> Karim Abdel Gawad's <laughs> status, but they could slot anybody in, right? There's so many people that they could throw in there with Tarek or Dasuki or one of the Solomon, anyone. So they are the clear-cut favorite. It's really hard to imagine them losing. That being said, England has the Sherbagi brothers playing number one and number two. So that kind of throws just a little bit of a wrinkle into that. And you could see it coming down to those two teams in the final and then it possibly and i think the best case scenario for this event to give it the juice it needs instead of a, a cairo runaway is for Asal to play marwan in the final match and have that be for the world championship and the drama that would lend to this tournament would put it in the spotlight for me anyways yeah i think they, they will probably be the two teams coming down to the final one thing you could possibly throw into the mix as 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 well as the Shibagi brothers playing against Egypt, is I don't think all the repl- all the players in Egypt have a fantastic relationship with the federation. So if you look at uh, Mohammed and Amarwan, I think when they put an England shirt on, I think they will really fight hammer tooth and nail for that particular team. Whereas I, I think behind the scenes, it's all, not all is well and hunky-dory with Team Egypt. So... Possibly that could be a potential issue. I don't know who their team manager is going to be. Sometimes there can be a bit of an issue with chemistry. So there, there is a few. There are a few variables, but you're going to need Team Egypt to be significantly off of their best for to give England a chance. For me, some of it may depend on the run up through the, uh, the group stages and how they do in the semis, quarters, and semi-finals. That could then play a factor because at the end of a tough week of squash, sometimes it's who's had a slightly favourable run through, may have a little bit more left in the tank come finals day. Also, 
thrown into the fray that Shabagis will have a massive point to prove against Team Egypt. Yeah. If it does come down to that final day with Team Egypt and, and Team England, then I think potentially it could get quite interesting for a, a pretty pretty long period of time before I think eventually the quality will just come through in the end. But we'll see. Over the years, I've seen how strong England, they come together, putting on that Team England shirt. Even during yeah. your time, PJ, I've seen you, Chris Walker, Mark Schallener, these guys, you guys, you play at a different level. Yeah. That's, what, that's why I say playing for the country is such a big honour. Yeah. Uh, it brings out the best. I, I think even for our women's team last year, just watching how Amanda played um, Noran Goha in Egypt, going to five and really you know, taking her on court. I, I think team event is so exciting. I, I would not put my money on Egypt. I know they're the favourites, but yeah, yeah. It, comes down to just the whole environment. I personally feel England actually has a very good chance of winning. A very good chance, yeah. 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 Bill, do you want to make that your prediction and then you can replay this? So I'm not going to predict the time. I think predicting Egypt is like predicting Secretariat to win Belmont after he, he won the first two legs of the Triple Crown handily. So instead, I'm going to focus on what I think is going to be a very exciting 15-16 match between Cook Island and Samoa. I've been following that those teams very closely. And I think that Samoa with Tony Rakamora playing number one for them will probably pull that out. So that's really the match that I'm looking forward to the most. Are you trying you hoping for an MC gig down there sometime, Bill? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I was, PJ, honestly, I was and would have loved to do it until I saw Nigeria's team. And I saw Nigeria's lineup, and honestly, I would have a stroke trying to pronounce any of their names. So there's no chance. There's absolutely no chance. I thought you were checking in with the league commissioner here for match of the week, but uh, yeah. No, go ahead. I'll give anybody, any listeners a dollar if they could correctly pronounce Nigeria's team's names because there's just no opportunity. But I think it's funny that some like Cook Island in Samoa and some of these squads, Nigeria, that really, it's great that they're throwing teams in there, but like, how does Nigeria afford to go to New Zealand and put a team out there, but India doesn't? It just strikes me as something's a little off on that. But yeah, looking forward to it. Do we think France has a chance to make a dent in the, we're looking forward to England and Egypt in the finals. Does the French team of Crew and Massadi, Dussard and Greg Marsh have a chance to upset the apple cart there? I think uh, like England, they also really show for team events and it gets kind of interesting. I think the drop off for England between the top two to three and four is pretty significant versus with France. I mean, they are fighters through and through. So you got Victor, Sophie happens to take out Mohamed El Shabagi like that you're going to or Mar if there's a split 1-1 in the top 2 going to the third the edge goes to France for me in that in Wales is an interesting country also because they do have some PSA experience there is Joel Macon healthy enough to play number 1 for them right now he's really taken like a leave from the PSA tour almost he has he didn't play in this past tournament hasn't played in quite some time and he's their number 1 player they, right so that they're an interesting one also so once you move up and you get down to that fourth player who might not have the experience having to move up and actually play in each one of these matches it makes a huge difference so i'm interested to see what Macon has when he steps out on court otherwise <laughs> I'm excited for this event. As we said, the issue with it being in New Zealand, it's going to be tough to watch it live because of the time zone change. You heard it here first, Egypt to be the 2023 Men's World Team Championship. It's hard. I think we said it before. It's hard to pass on Egypt as a favorite, but I wouldn't be surprised if England pulls it out. They have the chance to do it. I would love to see Team England beat Egypt in the final, although I do have my doubts if they happen to play France. I think the French have got a really good chance. Yeah, I really do. I think the French, the French, because they 
as Connor alluded to, they have that camaraderie, they have that togetherness. I think there's a little bit of a friction between Dussault and Masotti, but these team events, players tend to put that aside and get behind each other. So if any team can beat, sorry, any team can beat Egypt, it would be England, but I think England will struggle to beat France. Be yeah. my, that would be my prediction. I think England actually stands a chance of winning this. The two brothers, they are huge competitors in all these big events. So as much as I love all the Egyptian players, they are all very classy, very good players. But I think it, it is a team event and if it really comes down to one all. I, I think England might pull through if they get to the final. I think in the end, as long as we get a Marwan Assal match in the World Team Championships, I will be happy. I think that would be there'd be fireworks there, and I would look forward to that so much. And I know it's not going to happen, but I would love for Sheldon Anderson to referee that. So that would be my dream. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right, guys, Good that job. was great. Benghi, we appreciate you joining us. We, When you come back, we we would look forward to having you back on the show and giving it, having you give us a little recap on the color and what went down in New Zealand. But thank you very much. Good luck to the USA team. As Although we predict Egypt to win, we are all rooting for the USA to be on that podium at the end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms that you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.